Hamas terrorists aren't a resistance. They're not freedom fighters. They are terrorists. And no one in Canada should be supporting them, much less celebrating them. So that was encouraging last night. That was Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking at an event in Ottawa. We haven't heard from the Prime Minister today. Uh, we did hear earlier today U.S. President Joe Biden speaking and making it clear uh, that the U.S. stands with Israel. Let there be no doubt the United States has Israel's back. We will make sure the Jewish and Democratic State of Israel can defend itself today, tomorrow, as we always have. Biden also had this warning to any country any organization anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation i have one word don't uh, so to back that up the u.s has added to its uh, military presence in the eastern mediterranean uh, so there is that question i guess where does this all go from here uh, but for now, it's pretty clear that the, israel has suffered a devastating horrific terrorist attack at the hands of hamas Israel is now responding to Hamas. This is not an operation, as Israel's prime minister said. This is war. Uh, and this is a threat that Israel can no longer tolerate. We see what Hamas is capable of. We know that if they could, uh, they would do something even worse. And as bad as all the details are that are coming to light, uh, that's, that's frightening to think. Uh, so joining us to talk about what happened, uh, the aftermath, the response, where we go from here. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Clifford May, founder and president of Foundation for Defense of Democracies, FDD.org. Cliff, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's always good to be with you. I mean, it does seem everyone, including Israel, was caught off guard by this. And, you know, maybe in hindsight, that shouldn't have been the case. But first of all, what does it tell us about, you know, not just the intent of Hamas, which is pretty clear, but, but also their, their capabilities, which now Israel is, is seeking to, to weaken? Yes. Well, the intent we've always known or should, it's right there in the Hamas charter. It's genocidal. And it's genocidal uh, in terms of not just Israelis, but in terms of Jews. And the Hamas charter makes very clear that there can be no negotiations, there can be no two-state solution. Hamas intends to either kill or force to flee every Jew living in Judea, living in Jerusalem, living in the, in the Jewish quarter, every mm -hmm. single one. That's what we've known for years, although plenty of people have refused to accept that reality or denied it or said, oh, they don't mean it. In terms of capabilities, their capabilities are much more than a lot of people thought. I, I strongly suspect, and I think I, I, go, I can go beyond that, that their capabilities um, have been bolstered by the Islamic Republic of Iran, which yeah. provides funds, weapons, training. We, and we've had some very good reporting, uh, particularly from the Wall Street Journal, saying this, this attack, this surprise attack, this terrorist attack, these massacres, uh, this was all planned and discussed in Beirut by Hamas, by Hezbollah, and by uh, representatives of the Islamic Republic of Iran, particularly the Quds Force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, that comes from Tehran. Uh, that sh listen, the is Israeli intelligence failed not to know that and not to see that th that training was going on, and not to understand they I, they got complacent. They were uh, frankly, the Israelis got a bit duped. They thought that Hamas doesn't want another conflict in Gaza. They had switched their up or some of their uh, terrorist operations over to the West Bank to Judea, Samaria, and uh, that they want. And the Israelis were saying, you know. 
we're we're going to supply you more electricity, more water. We're going to let seventeen thousand uh, Gazans come and work every day in in Israel because uh, you guys need the money, and we'll double that in a very short time if there's calm. And the signals came from Hamas saying, "Yeah, that would be that'd be just wonderful." Um, they were unprepared for this in many, many ways. Complacency is a problem. We, we sort of learned that, I would right. say, on 9-11. But I think too many people have forgotten that at this point. Well, and Israel's going through that that all over again. But, I mean, it, yeah, it does raise the question. I mean, clearly there's no pragmatism on Hamas's part. A, a pragmatic Palestinian government or leadership would see those opportunities to, to build on that. That's, that's not what Hamas is interested in. So I guess, you know, there's that question, why now? Or what did they expect this, this would accomplish? Um, a couple of things. One, Israel and Saudi Arabia have been getting close to, to formally establishing relations. They have quietly has been establishing relations over the year. I think it's pretty clear that the Saudis, they don't want to fight with the Israelis. They want to work with the Israelis because they're building a Saudi Arabian nation. And, they, and I think the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is an enemy of Israel, but an enemy of Saudi Arabia, wanted to stop that. And maybe they have. They'd like to, I think also Iran would like to see this spill over into a much larger war. And that still may happen. Again, Hezbollah has something like 150,000 missiles pointing uh, at, at Israel. They could be launched any day. There have been provocations on the border. It hasn't entirely happened yet. Um, to a great extent, Hamas is a, is, is a pawn of Iran because what's going to happen now and what is happening now is Israel is going to do things in Gaza they've never done before. They're going to do whatever it takes to totally totally take the military capability that Hamas has had and destroy it. In the past, what they've done, they called it mowing the lawn. In other words, reducing the capability, knowing they'll come back in a few years, but oh well, it's what are you going to do? They're going to really destroy that. And Gaza is going to be much worse off for this. But again, both Hamas and I think the Iranians want the world to say, look at what the Israelis are doing to the poor people of Gaza. Oh, my God, solidarity with them. They think they'll benefit from that in this way. Again, the object is not a two-state solution. The object is genocide to destroy Israel. Well, and there was that Gaza dilemma. I mean, Israel left Gaza in 2005. I mean, for all the people who talk about it being <laughs> occupied. But d- does Israel want to go there again? I mean, who who else can take over in Gaza? I mean, Hamas Israel, has had it under under its thumb. Israel doesn't. You're right. Israel withdrew in 2005. Every soldier, every farmer, every synagogue, every grave, they left behind only high-tech greenhouses, which were destroyed because they were Zionist greenhouses. The Israelis don't want to reoccupy, and it's not clear what happens. A destroying course, destroying, destroy, destroying Hamas's military abilities is one thing. Destroying its ability to govern, well, it's not much going to be left to govern because they're going to destroy a great deal uh, unless Hamas releases the hostages, which would help but. We've seen no sign. On the contrary, Hamas says we're going to just kill the hostages one by one on video and and post those videos on the Internet. Um, There's been talk about other possibilities. Don't forget who governed Gaza prior to to the – look, Gaza was under the British Empire. Before that, it was under the Ottoman Empire. In the 1948 War of Independence – Gaza was seized militarily by Egypt. 1967 war against Israel. Israel won Gaza back from from Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then, as you say, in 2005, Israel said, okay, if the occupation is the problem, we'll withdraw from Gaza. And if that works out well, if Gaza becomes Singapore and the Mediterranean, if we have peace relations with, with Gaza, 
Uh, okay, then we'll talk about what to do in Judea and Samaria, which was renamed the West Bank when the Jordanians took it by military force. But of course, the opposite happened. Hamas took full control, took control away in a civil war that lasted two years against Fatah, which is its rival, and then began firing missiles against Israel. And uh, at that point, Israel's policy and strategy has been containment and, again, mowing the lawn every few years. And now I think Israel realizes that that, that's not good enough. We are going to have to we're going to have to defeat and destroy Hamas. We will need to do so to to restore deterrence and credibility elsewhere in the Middle East. But again, there's more. There's still Hezbollah and behind both Hezbollah and Hamas is the Islamic Republic of Iran. And Islamic Republic of Iran is also behind probably 19 other terrorist groups in the Middle East. Well, not to mention arming Russia as well and, and drones that are killing not Ukrainians. Not to mention too. arming yeah. Russia. That's right. And they and essentially Lebanon, which is now a failing state, is a colony of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Right. Uh, Syria is very much what we call a satrapy. It's dependent. Uh, the, the Assad, Bashar al-Assad, the dictator there, only stayed in power thanks to the help it got from Tehran and from Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iran also wants to take control of Iraq and is doing well. It has uh, the it backs the, the Shia rebels uh, in Yemen as well. Um, and by the way, they're making inroads in places you wouldn't expect, like Latin America. And don't forget, it was Hezbollah at Iran's orders that caused terrorist acts against the Jewish community in Argentina way back right. in the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, your thoughts on, on what you heard from, from U.S. President Joe Biden today? I mean, we'll have to see if those those words are, are backed up with actions, but uh, did, did he say the right, right things yeah. today? Yeah, look, I, I agree with you on, on both points. I think it was he seemed to me sincere. It seemed heartfelt. We have to see if it's backed up by action. It's one thing to say we're going to have an aircraft carrier in the, in, in the Mediterranean. That's That's really good. But if nobody believes you will actually do anything, you will actually use it, then that doesn't – deterrence requires not just capability but perception of will. And what the, and maybe he's communicating this in other ways I don't know to, say, Hezbollah, to the Lebanese government, which doesn't really control Lebanon, Hezbollah does. Mm-hmm. But say if missiles are launched – uh, from 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 Lebanon against Israel. Well, we have missiles on this vessel that may be launched as well, and again, they would be used not to kill people on purpose, but to knock out the missiles that are all pointing at Israel. Now, those missiles, again, Hezbollah does what Hamas does. They put them in schools. They put them in mosques. They put them in hospitals. They put them in homes because they want their human shields to be killed so they can say, look what's been done to us, how terrible how these people are. But if that, I would hope in other ways, and I'm not sure it's happening, that President Biden is making that clear to Hezbollah and making it clear to Hezbollah's masters in Tehran, you do not want to expand this war. You do not want to take that risk. I don't know if that's yet been made credible. One thing I think he could do is we're talking $6 billion this administration said we'll give to get a few hostages back. That right. money is still in Qatar. That money could be frozen right where it is. Yep. It probably should be because when you give money, billions of dollars for hostages, you encourage hostage taking. And what has Hamas done? It's taken hostages, including more than 20 American hostages. Okay. He should be saying those hostages need to be released very quickly. But again, they'll say, well, you gave millions and billions of dollars to the Iranians for the hostages. What's a, what are we, chop liver? Why can't we get that from you, too? He's got to say that's uh, one way to say that that, that era is over 
is to say I'm freezing that $6 billion because we understand that Iran played a major role in this terrible, terrible act of terrorism. See where it all goes from here. Much more is mentioned. FDD.org. Cliff, appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, Clifford May is uh, founder and president, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, FDD.org. So, yeah, uncertain as to where this all goes. But for now, I think it's safe to say that uh, Israel is focused on destroying the military capacity, capacity of Hamas. Not just reducing that capacity, not just sending a message to Hamas, but ending it as a military threat threat. So that's the focus right now. But all kinds of questions about to Israel's north, Hezbollah, and of course, the the shadow of Iran uh, that is cast over all of this. Now, yes, there are, as Cliff mentioned, American hostages. Uh, There is still, we believe, uh, at least one Canadian hostage, uh, someone who was there working as, uh, basically working for peace. But it's pretty clear that's that's not something Hamas is uh, interested in. This is the saddest part of liberating and taking back control of this kibbutz, barely a mile, a kilometer from the border with Gaza. It's been a two-day fight. There are bodies everywhere. There were so many murdered members of this kibbutz. Men, women, children, hands bound, shot, executed, heads cut. The Israeli Defense Force are back in control. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary here on a Tuesday afternoon. And yeah, it's been a a few days now since these uh, seismic events in the Middle East and and this horrific attack by Hamas uh, on southern Israel. And we're getting a clear picture now uh, of the extent of the horrors, the extent of the death toll, hundreds uh, of civilians dead. And as you heard in that piece there, that CNN's Nick Robertson is in one of these communities close to that border with Gaza. Uh, it's just un- unspeakable what they're seeing there. Uh, civilians who have been murdered, in some cases even beheaded, adults, children, babies. It's just gruesome, gruesome stuff. Uh, so Israel is coming to grips with all of this, how this happens and how they need to respond. If you look at it in terms of Israel's population, this is like 9-11 several times over for them. Uh, so the shock and the grief is going to be with that country for a long time. But Israel is at war. Ha- Hamas has made this a war. Uh, this was all very deliberate. This had long been planned. And Hamas carried this out uh, into the early hours uh, of Saturday. And uh, Israel just now taking back some of those parts of southern Israel. They're not taking the attack to Hamas in Gaza. So we will have much more on this uh, continuing developing story. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden is just speaking now. We'll get to some of his comments. We'll let you hear what the prime minister said last night. Uh, He spoke at an event in Ottawa, a solidarity rally for Israel. So much, much more to get to on that story throughout the afternoon. Look, we got a lot of other matters to get to here today. 403-974-8255 is a number. I want to start this afternoon here with uh, a fascinating book on Canadian history and two individuals who are very much, I think, intertwined in terms of their historical significance. Although one is, uh, I would argue, lionized to a much greater degree than the other. But Diefenbaker and Pearson, two prime ministers, two prime ministers of the same era, two political rivals, both had a tremendous impact on the Canada we now know and live in today. 
Uh, John Ibbotson is a writer at large with The Globe and Mail. His latest book is called The Duel, Diefenbaker, Pearson, and the Making of Modern Canada. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon. John, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here, Rob. Uh, let me just get your thoughts on, on what we're seeing unfold here uh, overseas and, and this horrific attack on Israel the other day and maybe where this is all going. We're now, once again, it feels like living through some, some history here. But just I want to get a thought from you on the significance of the moment we're at here. I'm, I'm simply uh, horrified, along with you and with all of your listeners, at the terrible atrocities that have been committed in the south of Israel. Um, there's no equivalency here. This isn't they did this and then they did that. Yeah. This is a terrorist attack by a terrorist organization on civilians. It is a part of a very long uh, and unhappy history in the region. Um, as it happens, uh, Lester Pearson chaired the UN committee that recommended the two-state solution, right. a state for Palestine and a state for Israel. If only that recommendation had been implemented, this might not have happened. Uh, but it didn't, and we've had... Um, decades of war and conflict uh, and misunderstanding uh, ever since. None of that, though, none of that history for a minute justifies the horrific actions that Hamas took uh, against civilians in the south of Israel today. It's, or, or earlier uh, last week, it's, it's, it's staggering. I've never seen or heard anything like it in my life. Indeed, yeah. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. But I mean, you know, you touched on you know Pearson and and his legacy, and I think, you know, certainly when you compare these these two former prime ministers, as I mentioned in the introduction, John, I mean, uh, Lester B. Pearson, you know, there's there's far more schools named after him, you know, other other honors. He he certainly has much more, I think, uh, of of a lionized legacy, if you will. Um, and maybe I don't know. Some would argue maybe that is justified to some extent. But uh, what, what do you make of the the different historical perspectives on these two figures? Well, I grew up with the same history that you did, uh, and it was the history that said John Diefenbaker, after winning the largest majority government in history up to that point, um, frittered that great achievement away, that he was indecisive, paranoid, um, uh, untrusting, uh, and, uh, and unable to effectively govern, and that as a result, his government staggered from one crisis to the next until it was finally defeated by Pearson in 1963. Um, and then, you know, uh, Mike Pearson gave us uh, the Canada Pension Plan and the Immigration Point System and the flag and other good things. But through the course of my career as a journalist, uh, I just kept coming across a major initiatives. And, and oh, that started on Diefenbaker's watch. Oh, mm -hmm. Diefenbaker did that. And it, it, it seemed to me that we needed to do a reappraisal of, of that period of history, not simply because... Um, Mike Pearson uh, has gotten all the credit and John Diefenbaker much of the blame. But um, because, in fact, much of what Mike Pearson achieved, John Diefenbaker had already launched. The two men couldn't stand each other and they fought each other for a decade, something we've never had before or since in Canadian politics. But through that decade, the Diefenbaker government launched major, major reforms in health care, in immigration. Uh, in foreign policy, in the justice system. And John, uh, Mike Pearson, when he became prime minister, carried on those reforms. Um, they are, in fact, two prime ministers who together gave us the modern Canada that we live in today. Uh, so the purpose of the book um, was twofold. First of all, to try to redress the balance, not to diminish Mike Pearson's achievements at all, mm -hmm. but to, to put John Diefenbaker in a proper and, and a more respected context in terms of his contribution to the life of Canada. And secondly, it's just the best political story ever. I mean, these guys came from small town, Victorian, Ontario, yeah. and then Diefenbaker went west and, and broke the prairie, saw it. Um, Pearson went on to a great career as a diplomat. 
Then they ended up facing each other against the House of Commons in election after election after election after election after election. Um, and uh, did fine things, but, but also just the political drama of their fight uh, for, for power and influence was a story that I thought had never been properly told, and it was time that somebody did it. Well, you talk about the nature of their relationship. I mean, how would they, how would they feel about uh, this book and this project and, and just how intertwined they are in, in a historical sense? I think, I hope, both of them would appreciate it. Again, the book doesn't seek to tear down uh, Lester Pearson's accomplishments. It simply uh, points out that, I'll give you one example. In immigration, it was the Leafmaker government that put an end to race-based immigration. Uh, Up until then, Canada was white, and immigration made sure it was white. But it was Ellen Faircloud, the first woman cabinet minister, uh, who, as immigration minister, uh, declared that from this day on, people will be admitted to Canada on the basis of their ability to contribute to the country, not on where they came from or the color of the skin or the language they spoke or their religion. That was the beginning of multiculturalism. And uh, Lester Pearson's government codified that in the point system, one of its greatest achievements, one of Canada's greatest achievements. And so... Stephen Baker opened the door, and Pearson codified the, the programs, and we have the multicultural candidate we have today. Dear Stephen Baker launched major reforms in public health care. Uh, Lester Pearson advanced those reforms into Medicare. I can go through health, uh, education, justice, reform after reform, giving First Nations the vote, which uh, was on Stephen Baker's watch, the Bill of Rights, which was on Stephen Baker's watch. It's wrong to say that Stephen Baker did poorly and Pearson did well. It's better to say that for all of his personal demons, Diefenbaker launched many of the initiatives that Pearson uh, carried out. You know, given the, the parties they represented and, and, you know, the history of the Liberal Party, the strong brand, especially then of the Liberal Party, and, and I guess maybe some of the political obstacles Diefenbaker had to overcome to, to reach that level, could it be argued that he was the more skilled politician? I think Mike Pearson would agree with you. Diefenbaker was a was the politician. They had a, a, a meeting once uh, in the prime minister's office uh, where they were t- fighting over uh, the latest scandal, um, and, Dieven- and Pearson put his arm around Mike and said, "You know, we shouldn't fight like this, Mike." And Mike said, "Well, you, you know, you're the one who started it." And <laughs> Pearson said, "Well, I'm not really a politician. I'm a diplomat." Um, Pearson never saw himself as a good politician, and he wasn't a good politician. He came from the bureaucracy and from, uh, from external affairs. Pearson, uh, Diefenbaker was a, um, a crusading lawyer and an MP for decades before he became prime minister. So, and he was much more closely attuned to what you would call the common man in those days. He was the first and only so far populist prime minister that this country's had. But his populism was rooted in his own experience living and growing up in that environment among those people. Uh, so, yeah, Diefenbaker was, was better on the stump and better as a politician than, than Pearson ever was. What about the flag debate? Because the, that's uh, one area where they definitely did not see eye to eye. And it shows where Pearson, uh, in some ways, does surpass Diefenbaker. Pearson recognized that the British Empire was over, that the United States was now the superpower, and Canada had to address that relationship. He also believed that Canada had to establish itself more firmly as a nation among nations, and that meant having its own flag. Diefenbaker couldn't grow in the way that Pearson could grow. Um, he still remained rooted in, the, uh, in loyalty to the empire, and he thought that the, the flag must always have the, uh, the Union Jack on it in some form or other. Um, Diefenbaker was wrong and Pearson was right. The Canada Canadian flag is something we, we all revere today. Um, and it marked, as I said, Pearson's ability to recognize that Canada was evolving, uh, a recognition that despite his many accomplishments, Diefenbaker could never fully grasp. 
One area, though, where, where you do give Diefenbaker a lot of credit, and, and uh, it, you know, interestingly, it's, it's, it's an issue that we think comes long after these two, and it was Pierre Trudeau who brought in the Charter of, of Rights and Freedoms. But going back to Diefenbaker and his Bill of Rights, how did that lay the groundwork for what, what eventually became the Charter? It's exactly what you said. It laid the groundwork. Until the Bill of Rights, there was really no understanding of human rights as an agenda issue in Canada. Uh, it was Diefenbaker who said, no, we can't just rely on common law and on precedent. We need to codify the rights all Canadian citizens have, and they cannot be taken away from them. And he introduced the Canadian Bill of Rights. Uh, the courts eventually stripped that bill of most of its power. But as Justice Rosalie Abello says in the book, Diefenbaker put human rights on the agenda. It's interesting that uh, Pierre Trudeau and Diefenbaker got along quite well. And one of the reasons they got along quite well was that Trudeau realized that Diefenbaker had introduced human rights as an agenda issue in Canadian politics. And indeed, the Bill of Rights would later take uh, form as Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There was a direct link between the one and the other. So in terms of what, what do you like people to take from this? Because as you say, I mean, even though it's, it's sort of a dual biography, that there is an emphasis on maybe some rehabilitation when it comes to, to John Diefenbaker's image. So maybe that's part of it, but also just how important this period was maybe in, in shaping the Canada of today. I think it's very, I, I really do hope that people realize that it's learned through the book, you know, those who didn't know that Canada did not begin the Confederation, uh, that modern Canada uh, really was created uh, in the years after the war and especially in the 1950s and 60s. Also, though, it's, I hope people think it's just a really good story, a really good read. These kids from small town Ontario, a preacher's son, a teacher's son, having these two very different careers. Um, and yet, in many ways, their career is paralleling the, the development of Canada as a country, from a semi-colonial dominion to uh, their last big fight, which was over whether to accept nuclear weapons on Canadian soil. That Their story is the story of the country, yeah. from, the, from Victoria until Centennial. And um, I really just wanted to tell that story and tell it in a way that people would find enjoyable. Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, tale of, of two really interesting and significant, historically significant, as it turns out, uh, individuals. It is called The Duel, Diefenbaker, Pearson, and the Making of Modern Canada. John Ibbotson, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rob. Thanksgiving had been the deadline set by the federal government for the big grocery chains to come up with a plan to, to freeze or to stabilize grocery prices. So just before the weekend, we had a big press conference in Ottawa. The innovation minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who was taking the lead on this, and he talked about the government's plan for stabilizing food prices. Now, much of the plan involves accepting the assurances from the big grocery store chains that they are going to do what they can to try to stabilize prices. Now, there's more to this as well, including uh, a, some proposed legislative changes to bill uh, through Bill C-56, which would uh, change the Competition Act. Now, competition is is more than just what's in the Competition Act. I think there's some concern that uh, if we're drastically and, and almost arbitrarily changing the Competition Act, that could actually discourage uh, the very competition we need. But anyway, joining us to talk about the issue of food prices, uh, where the retail side fits into all of this, and what we make of what we heard last week. Uh, from the minister. Very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Michael Von Masso, Associate Professor of Food Economics, University of Guelph. Uh, Professor Von Masso, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me. In terms of the announcement we got last week, was was that pretty much what everybody was expecting? Were there any surprises last week there? No, there were no surprises. I mean, to a significant degree, this looks like business as usual. Uh, the minister said, well, they're going to be more competitive because they looked us in the eye and we, we said, be more competitive. And then they announced things like, you know, price matching and and specials and some price freezes, which we know to a significant degree are pre-existing. Right. That, that, that this, is, this, is, this has been happening. So to me, very little surprise, I, especially given they didn't set any real sort of clear expectations when they called them in. So this, this to me, was to a significant degree uh, an exercise in public relations more than it was something that's that's going to have a substantive impact on on food prices. Mm-hmm. Well, the underlying implication is that by you know having the the heads of the five big grocery chains come in, like they, these are being held up as the culprits or or some of the culprits in, in what's been happening with food prices. So they've sort of been identified as part of the problem, but. I mean, to what extent is is it fair to label retailers that way? Well, I I don't believe it's fair to to point fingers at retailers. They're an easy target. It's where we spend the money. It's where we feel these impacts. Um, But, you know, the Bank of Canada has said the retailers aren't contributing significantly. I'm doing some work right now looking at it, and it doesn't look like the the retailers are, are contributing significantly. Even the Competition Bureau, when they came out, didn't find strong evidence that this is what was causing the problem, uh, despite making some recommendations for improvements. Uh, so, so really, what, what we've got here is kind of a ready-fire-aim approach to policy, rather than taking a, a serious look at what's causing these issues and the degree to which individual components are contributing to it, and then addressing policy, we're just saying, oh, let's try this, or oh, let's try that. And, and frankly, I don't think it's going to be very effective. I know there's some concern. I mean, you know, the Competition Bureau had raised the issue of, you know, some of the smaller independent grocers in this country, and how do we help to build them up? In a situation right now, if the larger chains uh, can can maybe afford to take a bit of a hit and publicly make a show of lowering or freezing some prices is it more difficult for the smaller chains to do that and what are the implications of that well you're exactly right i mean forcing the big guys to do something whether they're doing something different or not remains to be seen uh really puts pressure on the smaller players who have trouble competing because they don't buy as well they can't distribute as efficiently so if you know as much as we talk about anti-competitive behavior, if we force those big players to reduce prices, it makes it even more difficult for the smaller players to, to, to contribute. So this policy announcement may actually go counter to what, what they've, they said is a priority for them. So how do we understand, then, what's been driving food prices? If it's not the retailers, uh, what are the factors that have been contributing to, to higher food prices? And are we starting to see some, some slowing in that? Well, without a doubt, we're starting to see some th- slowing. We focus on the annual number, mm-hmm. uh, which when it came out in August, which is the last month for which we've got reporting, uh, was still at about 6.9%. But if we look more sh- more closely at at at, at more recent months for in the month of august food prices actually went down in the month of june food prices actually went down but they didn't go down enough to offset the earlier increases that we had 
in the past year. In all three of the last three months, we have actually seen um, rates of food price inflation that were lower than the rate of general inflation. So, so things are looking good. Now, we expect some of that because it's a seasonal reduction as we get into Canadian, uh, into Canadian harvest season. So some of that is expected. But I think some of the fundamental things are, are improving too. The, the, the problem, the, the, what's contributing to, to food price I- inflation is, is kind of a perfect storm of factors. And that's why there's no silver bullet to make it go away. The war in Ukraine has been important. The yeah. Canadian dollar has been important. Few, the up and down fuel prices have been important. Extreme weather events have been important, right? We saw flooding in, in, uh, in the Salinas Valley in California in, in February and tomato and lettuce and other prices went through the roof because more than 80% of North America's supply in February comes from there. So we've got all of these factors sort of mostly on the supply side conspiring uh, at the same time to drive up food prices. Well, you, you did kind of touch on, I know, you know, some have raised the question that if the government were really concerned about food prices, I mean, there there are taxes, there are regulations, there are policies, you know, supply management, there's a, that whole can of worms. But th- there are ways in which government policies affect food prices. Would it be reasonable, do you think, if, if government were interested in trying to address food affordability, they, they look at their side of things? Well, I think, I think it is worth looking at some of those. I think many of those factors will be smaller than people think. Mm-hmm. And, and it goes back to let's, talk, let's have a good understanding and discussion and analysis of what's causing these food prices to be higher than, than many Canadians can afford and, and what we'd like uh, before we go sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So there are things like interprovincial trade barriers that we could deal with. Yeah. There have been people who said let's look at supply management I would argue that those impacts are much smaller uh, than than many people think, and there are sort of knock-on effects if we make changes. Um, so there are a variety of things that the government does that 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 they could get that they could uh, get rid of. But again, they're not going to deal fundamentally with the with the bigger problems that we've had from a supply perspective that look like, to a degree, uh, they're coming under control. That said. We know it's 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 dry in parts of Alberta. We know that there are still the possibility for extreme weather events that can throw things off the rails. But we are heading in the right direction, which is interesting because you know if if that continues, if we continue on that path and things look better, you know, five or six months down the road, it, <laughs> the government will sort of pat itself on the back, I'm sure, and say, look, our, our plan worked. But I guess the concern is if we don't see improvement in food prices, there, there's been, you know, kind of that, that underlying threat that maybe the government would look at other measures, maybe tax measures that might apply to grocery profits, that sort of thing. Um, what could be the impact of that, though, do you fear? Well, tax measure, if we say, look, uh, you need to do better or you're going to get taxed more, uh, the grocers now are saying, well, we're going to try and do better, although we have no benchmark to compare it to. Mm-hmm. So if there is no or marginal change in grocer behavior and the government says we're now going to tax these grocers, um, then grocers are that's not going to bring prices down by any stretch. If anything, it might bring prices up in response uh, to to higher rates of taxation to make sure that net income uh, continues to be uh, t- continues to be uh, 
suitable for share, for shareholders. So it, in fact, taxation is at best neutral and at worst inflationary. So to me, they're, they're sort of waving the stick and, and I hope they're smart enough not to, to sort of hit them with that stick and that they're hoping that this threat of taxation will cause uh, some decreases in prices. It's important to recognize that, that food, even if the grocers had made zero profits last year, mm-hmm. zero profits last year, uh, food prices would have gone up. So, yeah. so to a significant degree, uh, this isn't uh, being driven by grocers. So, so taxing them, uh, taxing them isn't going to help either. We'll see where it all goes from here. Appreciate your perspective, your insight on all this, Michael. Thanks so much for your time here this afternoon. Have a great day. Thanks you for as well. having me. Likewise, that's uh, Michael Von Masso, Associate Professor of Food Economics, University of Guelph. So some perspective on what we got from the federal government last week, which wasn't a whole lot. And maybe they, they realize, okay, perhaps things are starting to turn around. Perhaps things are trending in the right direction. What can we do to make it look like we caused that? How can we try to take credit for what might be happening anyway? Right, so some slowing in food, food inflation is some improvement there. Because otherwise, what we saw last week wasn't really anything. Oh, we're expecting early next year that the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is going to be up and running. As you know, there have been some bumps along the road in getting this project to completion. With the government taking ownership, the cost rising, various challenges, including most recently, uh, one last little hiccup. Hopefully a last hiccup, the um, the need to adjust the route slightly, which has been granted approval. So that project is pretty close to the finish line. Uh, we had as well the Line 3 pipeline project, uh, which has been overshadowed a, a lot, I think, by the, um, by, by the Trans Mountain ordeal. But uh, nonetheless, some of these capacity restraints that we've been stuck under for quite some time are, are easing. So what does that mean then for production levels in Canada? A new report out from Deloitte finds that uh, with some higher Canadian crude prices and that added um, export capacity, shipping capacity, uh, that we're going to see production reach an all-time high over the next two years. Uh, So joining us uh, to talk more about uh, these findings, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, the author of the report, uh, Andrew Botterill, National uh, Lead on Oil and Gas for Deloitte Canada. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so first of all, in terms of kind of the assumptions we're making, like does it seem like a pretty reasonable assumption that we're going to have this this added pipeline capacity sometime next year? It sure does. Every, all indications from the projects up here that uh, we are going to see that added capacity, and I think industry's excited to start to deliver uh, volumes into those projects. So how significant is that capacity created by the, the TMX project? Well, you know, it, it's... The volumes alone are they're, they're material. They make a difference, I think, to the basin. And for sure is, uh, like I said, something that companies are looking forward to. But I think one of the other really exciting pieces is that it is going to be one of those first times that we're going to see the Canadian market start to access water export um, volumes into Asia and start to participate in the global market a little bit more so than they have in the past. Where you know, We've been beholden to putting volumes into the U.S., it's interesting because, you know, the, the forecast here is that we'll see higher production, but also higher prices. And I mean, maybe we might expect that with more supply, that might lead to lower prices. But what are we expecting on that side then? Well, you know, 2023 really has been uh, 
um, as the year went on, we saw more and more demand. And I think everyone, as we came out of COVID, there was a lot of questions as to what we were going to see global demand head to. And really throughout the year, it out-delivered um, all those expectations and showed that the globe is still looking for um, looking for oil, looking for natural gas, and energy needs are out there and demand continues to grow. So I think it's been a, a real positive picture for the oil and gas industry and, and seeing that that global demand is uh, indeed growing coming out of COVID and we're seeing developing nations around the, around the globe continue to look for uh, more sources of crude. Right. So you, you think that supply capacity is there. Like as long as you know, we can shed these uh, shipping constraints that, that we can meet that demand, we can produce at this level. Well, I think what we've seen from from our Canadian producers is, is revenues are there. They're strong. They're able to uh, develop and drill wells and, and deliver when when the need is there. So, I think what we've seen and what we're seeing from companies right now is they're looking at increasing budgets. They're seeing higher oil prices and relatively firm natural gas prices and. Mm-hmm. We're drilling and developing wells, and the U.S. is doing the same too. So I think we're going to see producers with those strong cash flows look to deploy more capital in 2024. Uh, oil prices—it's been a bit of a roller coaster over the last uh, year and a half. I mean, the invasion of Ukraine certainly—we we saw a spike in oil prices. We saw some softening earlier this year. That's rebounded uh, a bit more recently. So it's always volatile, I guess, at the best of times. What are we expecting, at least over the next year? You know, it absolutely is volatile, volatile, and and we saw that, like you said, Ukraine and the softening, and then the rebuilding throughout the year, um, and then of course you we'd be remiss to to not mention what happened this weekend in Israel and what that might do to uh, the Middle East and what that region looks like. So volatility was to continue to play a role in it, but I think what what the globe is seeing right now is is, is that we're seeing really firm demand, supply is is following and as as we see companies and, and countries uh, invest capital to try to meet that demand um, there's going to be some higher prices but I do think it's going to soften some I think as we get into 2024 when uh, the capital that people have been putting to work in 2023 comes to bring volumes into the sector. It's another issue, too, and I mean, it was a, sort of a report within a report, I, I believe, here. But I, I guess, you know, the fact that we, we could see oil production at record levels, that doesn't take away from what's happening on, on the clean energy side, right? So we're still seeing progress there. We're still seeing investment there. What about that side? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, World Petroleum Congress was in, in Calgary just a couple of weeks ago, and that's where a lot of the energy producers from around the globe came to, to Calgary for this conference. And I think that really was the big theme is that we're seeing a, a lot of pressure for um, companies to deliver energy into the market right now. So in the short term, there's a lot of demand and, and the need to be there. But there's also the expectation from um, investors and, and, and people at large to look at what are the balanced portfolios for these companies in the coming decade. And what we heard resoundingly from energy producers was they are investing. Now, these are long projects and they take a long time. And we're looking at a lot of optionality around carbon capture, for example, yeah. and what hydrogen might look like in the long term. But we're seeing a lot of appetite for companies while revenues are up. The appetite's there to deploy some capital to understand what are the risks of some of these new businesses that they're getting into and how do they de-risk them over the coming decades so that when it comes to deploying the big $5 billion project or the $10 billion project, um, how do they have a better understanding on some of the technology risks that are there and some of the commercial risks um, that are present in these projects that may, may not have been there and just, you know, the conventional development of oil and gas.
Yeah, and there is going to be a need for, for government and, and the private sector to work together. I mean, you know, in Canada, the focus has been on carbon capture technology. That's a good example. Are, are we figuring out how that risk can be shared? I, I think we are, right? And I think that it's been a, a, there's been a lot of work done in the last year, I think, between governments and the private sector to, to understand where the risk lies and how do we deploy capital and, and start to de-risk these opportunities. So I think there does seem to be a really good avenue between um, provinces, the feds, um, companies, Canada here, but as well around the globe. Um, companies are looking at how do we, how do we partner? Because they recognize that some of these some of these big investments are they're about decarbonizing our infrastructure as Canada. Our entire energy grid, for example, needs to be relooked at. So I think the recognition is that this isn't for an individual company to solve, and it is bringing together our utilities, it's bringing together our energy producers, it's bringing together governments to try and figure out these projects are going to look different. How do we um, how do we support each other? How do we deploy capital and recognize that there's maybe more risk to these projects? How do we go and share in that risk? Very interesting. Much more at uh, Deloitte.ca. Andrew, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye. All the best. Uh, that's Andrew Botterill, national lead on oil and gas with Deloitte Canada, the author of this uh, report, looking at uh, what to expect in terms of prices, production over the next year. So it's an interesting moment we're at. Uh, so the forecast here is that Canadian oil producers likely to enjoy higher prices next year when the TMX pipeline begins transporting. Uh, Much of these additional exports will go to markets outside the U.S., allowing Canadian producers to reduce their dependence on U.S. refinery operations and narrow that WCS price differential. So that's encouraging news. And at the same time, on a a separate track, as he said, there's still a lot of progress being made on clean energy, uh, on developing technology, developing other sources of energy. So these things are happening simultaneously, and it's not one or the other. Uh, There is still in the short term, for sure, tremendous demand for oil and gas. And there's an increased ability here for Canada to to be the the producer to meet that demand. So the fact that we'll be uh, exporting more, the fact that we'll have this new pipeline up and running, the fact that we'll be at record levels of production uh, should not be seen in in, the context of of taking away from our efforts to uh, address climate change or or the energy transition. And we, we, we can do both. But... Yeah, in the meantime, we need to be realistic about the energy needs, where the demand's coming from, and how we meet that. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.